0: Our scripture reading this morning is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. If you have one of these Bibles from the card in the back, you'll find it on page 556. While you're turning there to Ecclesiastes chapter 6, let me make one brief announcement on behalf of the deacons with regard to the weather. We are currently under a tornado watch, which simply means conditions are favorable. And even though they don't expect uh, more severe weather until later today... There's always that possibility that could pop up at any time. In the event a tornado siren goes off, we'll hear it. it. If you haven't noticed, it's right out in our front yard on that big, tall telephone pole, and it really is loud. If that goes off during the service, we just simply need to get up and move through the corridor back here, connecting this building with the other building. Go through the fellowship hall, and once you get to the hallway outside the fellowship hall, you may turn either left or right. There are stairs just around the corner to the left. There are stairs a little farther away down the hall to the right, and make your way down to the basement. There's plenty of hallway space down in the basement to accommodate this many people. We'll open a couple of classrooms, and that's a very, very safe place to be in the event of bad weather. Um, If you have children in the nursery, please know that the nursery staff has rehearsed uh, their obligations and responsibilities in this kind of event please do not try to rush back there and get your children they will be ushered safely to the basement and you can join up with your children there if we get nursery people trying to come out with children and parents trying to go back to get their children it could cause a real log jam so parents please resist that temptation know that your children are well cared for and they have a plan in place to get them to the basement and you can find your children when you get there. It's not likely that will happen but in the event it does, that's our procedure. We just make our way quietly and quickly down to the basement. Uh, The building will be open this afternoon. Uh, Davis County Emergency Management has asked us to keep our building open from 2.30 until 5 o'clock when they expect the more severe weather to take place. If you need a place to go, the building will be open And we'll have places available in the the basement for you between 2.30 and 5. Now, if we can pull our attention back away from all of that to the Word of God, I call your attention to Ecclesiastes chapter 6, and we'll read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 12. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, And he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over fool, over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? May God bless the reading and now the preaching of His word.
1: Well, dear people, uh, sometimes the sovereignty of God is uh, its one of the greatest blessings of our lives um, as we think of it. Um, it it's, it's that solid uh, reform doctrine that uh, will minister such peace and such comfort to us and, and such adoration Because God's glory is uh, displayed on account of it. It just means that God is in control of everything and that He's got a plan and His plan is perfect. But these things don't always come to us uh, instantly or immediately. If someone smashes your car or if you smash your car, it will do no good for someone to step up and say to you, God is sovereign or if you lose your job and you just get that pink slip and and somebody says hey you know god's in control of everything or if you're working on your computer and you've worked a long long time and you've got something just right and suddenly your computer crashes or you lose the file uh it's very little comfort at that moment to say uh, God is sovereign, unless you really feel it, or the, sun, uh, the sudden ex, uh, unexpected loss of a loved one. Yeah. You need time. You grieve. Your heart aches. But dear people, we ultimately come to it. If, if you're a child of God, you do experience that, and you do know that God causes all things to work together for good, no matter how worn that verse is. It is still true. It's still something you can hang your whole soul on, no matter what happens. You can do that. Well, this passage that we have before us uh, has has been described as a dark and difficult passage uh, that's just icy, icy cold. And yet at the same time, I think we're going to find that there's Holy Spirit light here as well. Here's the simple outline uh, that, that God has given me um, in, in His providence. Number one, satisfaction is not guaranteed. That's verses one and two. Number two, there is a shocking cage rattling comparison in verses three through five. Number three, there is the same old story in verses 6 through 8 and and we'll just summarize that and number 4 there are substantial questions in verses 11 and 12 that deserve an answer well then first of all uh, satisfaction is not guaranteed Uh, you hear the popular saying in marketing satisfaction guaranteed or your money back in this particular case what promises satisfaction or what appears or what is highly acclaimed as being very satisfying is not going to be. It is not guaranteed. We learn that there is an evil that this preacher, this teacher has seen un- under the sun. He says it lays heavy on mankind. It's evil. It's a tragedy. It's heavy. And by heavy, it is meant that it is both prevalent it is pervasive and, and is also deeply troubling and, and problematic. Verse two calls it a grievous evil," or it could be translated a sickening tragedy. What is it? Well, it's the case where a man who God gives wealth, it says, of uh, possessions and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger, somebody else, enjoys them. Our teacher says this is vanity. It is a grievous evil. And what makes it seem so grievous under the sovereign hand of God, in this case, the man has everything, but he's not having fun. He's not enjoying it. But in Pastor Ted's message last week, up from chapter 5, you notice verse 19, just above where we are or, or on the previous page, we read that everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, it is the gift of God. That's what he said. He said, be satisfied with what you have. Whatever level you have, enjoy it. It's a gift from God, whatever level of, of, of prosperity. But you see here, God does. The sovereign God does whatever he pleases. He doesn't need any advice. He has no counselor. He always does what is right. There's not going to be a board meeting. There's not, he's not going to take a vote. That's not our God. No investigation is, further investigation is needed. In this case, he withholds the joy. He does not empower the man who has everything to enjoy what he has. Uh, David says something to this effect uh, uh, in Psalm 39, in verse 6. He says, certainly... Man walks about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they frantically rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. They run about as an immaterial, unsubstantial shadow, gathering things, and and whose hands do they fall into? Martin Luther says this is a description of a rich man Who lacks nothing for a good and happy life, but does not have one. Money guarantees nothing. Much of it does not mean the favor of God. The prosperity gospel preachers, which I hope to give you an example of that next week in in a video that Brother Blake Castle is uh, providing for us. Just a snatch of what these deceivers say. It's no sign of God's blessing to have a lot of money. It's not something even to be sought as a blessing for itself. Money can make a lot of things convenient. You can get a lot of stuff. You can win the admiration and esteem of others if you are rich. But money cannot make you happy. Believe the teacher, believe the preacher, believe what we read here. Money cannot make you healthy. You cannot buy health. You can't get it. And money will never get you into heaven. Look at the limitations of it. Not happy, not healthy, not heaven. Although money can get you an awful lot of other things. And here in this particular case, we don't read that it it was lost, that it was stolen, that it was destroyed. All we read in our text is that it was not enjoyed. And it falls into the hands of an unknown person, a non-family member, somebody who has not gathered it. We don't know why these things happen. But they did. They do happen. Contentment is a rare jewel. It is the gift of God. It is priceless to have this, to be happy with what you have. If you have that gift, it is productive of so much joy, so much pleasure in simple things in whatever God has allotted to us. And to finally be free from the slavery of always wanting more and better and the best if you have that gift, then treasure it. Be glad to have it. If you don't have it, then seek it. Try to get it. Ask God for it. It will be tremendous to have that, and you'll be so much helped and so much more useful. Heading number two is the shocking cage-rattling comparison that comes in verses 3 through 5. It's, it's shocking. It's shaking the cage that... that people are in that's locked but they, but they hear the rattling it's, it's an alarm it, it sounds in people's ears if, if they'll only listen he says if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he has no burial I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. You should be shocked by that. In those days, not in our day anymore. In our day, if you have a lot of money, that's a great thing. In their day, if you had a lot of children, if you had many, many children... That was a great thing. That was a sign of God's blessing. If you didn't have children, if, if, if your wife was barren, or, or if you just couldn't have children as, as a couple, it was subtly considered a curse. They would whisper about you, Elizabeth has no children. I wonder what they've done. But this man is conceited of having a hundred children. And not only that to live many, many years. The three things, wealth, children, and long life, those were the things that were esteemed. And to a certain extent, they're still esteemed here, but we're so upside down. We don't want to have a lot of kids. We kill kids before they're born. We, we, these atrocities are, 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 are what our nation is, is, is known for. But put yourself back then. I think there's a TV program on somewhere. I, I, I don't watch television, but I'm aware of this program. This Christian couple has like 19 kids. And, and, and they track with them. And it's, and, and I, it's entertaining and, and enlightening, I suppose. It's, it's, it's on television. But this man, this teacher says, he says, It's better to not ever have lived really lived if you do not have joy if you do not have happiness in your prosperity and in the length of life and in the abundance of of children you know that from time to time even the saints have longed to die Job longed for this and and this links us uh, to where we are here he says in Job chapter 3 and verse 11, because of all of his suffering, have compassion on Job. Nobody suffered like him. No other human being ever suffered the way Job suffered. The devil unleashed on him to the maximum, short of killing him. Whatever you want to do, you can do to Job. He's my servant. He'll glorify me. Uh, Job says, why was I not stillborn? born? <laughs> Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me and why were there breasts for me to nurse? Now I would certainly be lying down in peace. I would be asleep. Then I would be at rest. That's what he wanted. Rest is the desired commodity. Rest is what is longed for and not found. You remember, even the Son of God, even Jesus Christ, upheld this principle. You remember the apostles were all gathered in that room in Matthew 26, verses 22 through, through uh, 25, deeply distressed, each one began to say to him uh, concerning who was going to betray him. Surely not I, Lord. They searched their own hearts. They, every one of them thought it, it could be them. It was only one. Jesus replied, the one who dipped his hand with me in, in the bowl, he will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Listen to what Jesus says. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas's heart is hard, so hard, so depraved. He cannot receive that rebuke. He's not turned by the words of Jesus. He's given over to his reprobate mind. And he says, then Judas, his betrayer, replied, surely not I, Rabbi. You have said it, Jesus told him. Dear people, not to be born for us is not an option, is it? It is self-evident you are born. Even though the statement is true, for a sinner who will not repent, who refuses the gospel, it would be better for him, it would be better for her, if they had never been born. But the fact of the matter is, everybody that's hearing my voice is born. And you have no choice. You were born for so much more. You were born for so much more than worldly pleasure and a long life and lots of kids. You were born for eternity. You were born to be immortal. You were born to spend life somewhere forever. And that's why you've got to have Jesus. You've got to have that substitute. You've got to receive this rebuke. It would be better if you're lost... And you die lost, it will be better that, that you were never born. But Jesus offers himself to be your substitute. You've got to say to yourself, I've got to have him. At all costs, with all energy, with all faith, with all dependence, I've got to have him. Well, we notice then in the uh, third place, this is the same old story in verses 6 through 8. Uh, verse 6 says even though he should live a thousand years twice over and yet enjoy no good do not all go to the same place here's this long life a a long life twice as more than twice as long as methuselah who lived 960 years they all meet the leveler they're all leveled no matter how long you live No one can stay here. No one gets out of here alive. The the two exceptions in the Bible only prove the rule. And so he lived, however, X number of years, and then he died. It's it's the repeated mantra. And then he died and was buried. Verse 7. And... And the toil of man is, I'm only going to summarize it. And, and, and the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. We eat in order to live. And, 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 and then we work so we're able to eat. This cycle goes on and on, day after day, in every generation, in every place, on, on earth. Eating is what keeps us alive, but we must work in order to eat so we can stay alive. And yet, we're always hungry. Hungry, Hunger always comes back. You'll never lose your appetite unless you are deathly sick and you're nauseous. The exception, again, proves the rule. The broad rule is we shall always have an appetite no matter how much we eat. Uh, verse 8 says, For what advantage ha- has a wise man over a fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? There are relative temporary advantages, both to the poor and to the rich. Both groups have their advantage. The simplicity of life for a poor man, uncomplicated, is is a good thing if he knows how to skillfully live at that level the the rich man has the same option but he has other he's got other problems each have their own disappointments the rich man worries about what he has the poor man has nothing to to, to lose but he may worry about is he going to eat today skillful living at in 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 whatever group you find yourself in; they find themselves in. All end at at the same point. They both die anyway. Uh, verse nine says, "Better in the sight of the eyes is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of of the appetite." This also is vanity and striving after wind. Better in the sight of the eyes is just a metaphor for the present situation. Better to enjoy what you have, to keep what you have, versus the restless ambition that's always reaching. But both of them are only trying to embrace the wind, according to the text. It's vain, it's empty. The present, he's already said this. He has said it, he said it a dozen times. We come up empty Either way, verse 10 says, whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is. He is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. At least a dozen times we've heard something like this, that there is nothing new under the sun. The condition of mankind, the activities of mankind, what they do, what, what, what they try to do, what they accomplish are, are, are the same throughout history, their needs, their aspirations, their ambitions, their goals, their practices, they are virtually the same. There's nothing new. It's all the same. It is a unchanging in all of its categorical activities. But at the end of verse 10, we begin to see A glimmer of hope. That's what I promised. There's Holy Spirit light here. All of the commentators agree on this. We read that, and he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Who is the one who is stronger? Who is that? What is, or who is this limiting person, this limiting factor Who is the one that we have an inability to win the argument or to settle a dispute with? Everybody wants to be able to do that. Who who is mankind really arguing against that is so much stronger than he is or than she is? It's God. God is the one who is stronger. Brian Borgman, Pastor Borgman says, Our arms are too short. To box with God. Our feet are too slow to maneuver around him. You remember what Job said. When, when, when Job was pushed and pushed and pushed uh, by the devil, by his wife, by his disease, by his suffering... By his burning flesh, by his sleepless nights, by his nightmares, by his friendless life. All all that he had, he he was pressed and he did complain against God. He did argue with God. He did dispute with him. But when God revealed himself to him, what did he say? He said, I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand on. Over my mouth, I have spoken once. I will not reply twice, but I can add nothing. He met the one who was stronger than him. He could say, I could say this. I've had an experience like this, a a teeny pinprick like this, where I was rejected from Cuba on my 11th trip. And I remember how my heart broke and how I argued with them and I told them that I was a, I, I was a Cuban in disguise and, and that my blood was Cuban and, 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 I, and, and I'm the best friend of Cuba. How can you do this to me? And I didn't cry till I got on the plane. I flew back to Panama and sat there on a balcony listening to Fernando Ortega and full of self-pity I called the Christman home. It was in the middle of the night. My sister, Diane Chrisman, who uh, uh, suffered from migraine headaches and, 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 and things like, she, uh, she was awake. Such a comfort to my soul. Don't feel sorry for me, okay? That's, that's how it was. And I remember thinking while she was talking to me that I cannot tame Leviathan. I do not know how the mountain goats give birth. I, I am insignificant. I am so sorry, God, for arguing against you. I'm so sorry for all my self-pity. I'm, I, I should have been thankful for, for the 10 previous times that I've been all over Cuba. I know Cuba like you know Kentucky. Do you know anybody else like that? Privilege, privilege, privilege. I, I, I get rejected arguing with God. Job says, I know that you can do all things and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke things that I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I had heard rumors about you. But now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I Take back my words in dust and ashes. It's a good place to be. God is always right. Always does what is best. He cannot be stopped. There is no other plan. I learned this from John Piper. I'll say it till I die. There's only plan A. There is no plan B. He's not looking at all the options of things that he can do. He already knows what to do. Doesn't need advice, doesn't need to investigate, doesn't need to look into the matter further, doesn't need to do it then doesn't, doesn't to read a book on it, doesn't listen to experts, nothing. Plan A is always in, in force. God says that the nations in the book of Isaiah in Isaiah 40, 15, he says, "Look at the nations are like a drop in the bucket." They are considered as a speck of dust on the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Isaiah forty fifteen. Stop and just pause there for a minute. All the nations, just think of, of the United States, this grand nation, but add China to it. and Add the Middle East. Add the Far East. Add South America. Add all of Canada. Add Africa. Dust, a speck. It's a, it's a speck on the scale. You are, whoosh, whoosh. The, the nations are off the scale right now. That's that's our God. What do you, you bow down and worship, and say, God. This is, this is. All the nations are as nothing before you. They are considered by Him as nothingness, emptiness. That's the omnipotent one. That's the one. That's the one that we call upon when we cannot do something. We can do nothing apart from him. There's nothing he cannot accomplish. Ask huge, ask big, ask massive of an omnipotent God. Oh, uh, verse 11 says There are more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? No end to words. He concludes that the yakity yak is worthless. All the expert opinions, the endless news castings, commentaries, analysis, opinions, perspectives of men, there is no gain whatsoever. Uh, Proverbs ten nineteen says, When there are many words, sin is unavoidable. But the one who controls his whips, his lips is wise. What we need is is a revelation. We need somebody to, to come and speak to us who's not from this world. We, we, that's what we need to hear. We, we, need, we need to learn how to listen. We, we need to learn how to listen to God. There's no end to the words of men. No end to it. Well, let's go to our fourth heading then. Uh, substantial questions that, that are deserving of an answer. Question number one. For who knows... What is good for a man while he lives a few days of this vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who knows? God knows. God knows what is good for a man. He answers the question. He is the defining person. He is the personification of all that is good. He is infinitely good. You go into God and you just go in and in and in and all, all you find is good. Our goodness, uh, in large part, is, is, is surface good. That's how good I am. Just what you see. Um, I, I don't think I have any really, really goodness w- within me. But what does God say? Just very simply, Michael 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, He has told you, mankind, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? It's real simple. It's the, it's the only text I'm going to use to do justice to love kindness and to walk humbly with your god that's good so why we are like a shadow like a vapor like smoke like grass like the dew why our lives pass so quickly let's let's be like god Let's love justice. Let's love kindness. That's, that's what he's like. Let's walk with his son by the power of the Holy Spirit. The second question is, for who can tell a man what will be after him un, under the sun? The same answer. It's God. Nobody else can tell you. God can. He holds the future. He determines the future. He is already there in what we call the future. He transcends time. Here's the plan. I would have this tattooed on me. I, I like this text so much. I won't say anything more about that. Here's the plan. Here's what Jesus said. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world. This is the future. It'll be, everybody will hear it in, in this world. Every people group will hear about Jesus. As a testimony, he says, to all the nations, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world, to all the nations. And then the end will come. It's all the eschatology I need. That's it. It's all I need. To know that this gospel is going to advance in this world. It's going to be proclaimed in every nation. There will be representation from every people group on this planet. And then the end will come. That's, that's it. Here's the second text here. What's going to come? What's going to come after a man? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Uh, this is 1 Thessalonians four, sixteen through 18. With the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then all who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. And Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, what do we take away from this passage then? What are just two things? What are two things? You can take away more than what I'm going to give you, but what are two things? that would have made this dark picture bright for the joyless, wealthy man. I hope you relate to him. I hope you relate to to what Pastor Ted told us. In a certain sense, all of us are wealthy. What would have helped him? What would have changed his life? What would have made him joyful? If he had holy ambition, if he just had that, If he wanted to invest in the kingdom of God, if he shared what he had, if he freely distributed to the poor, if he had a plan, if if he gave his life to Jehovah, to Yahweh, and he said, I surrender all, all that I have is yours. I'm a steward everything that I've received, I've gotten it from you and I want to give it back to you. He would have had a meaningful life. He would have had a happy life. The joy of generosity. You ask any generous person you know, ask them, are they glad? Are they happy to give? They will tell you, yes, yes, I want to do more. No matter how generous they are, they want to do more. That would have made for a happy man. He would have rejoiced. He would have had joy he would have known that pleasure because it is more blessed to give, more blessed to give than to receive. He was doing all the receiving and he didn't get the blessing with, with, with what he was receiving. C.S. Lewis says this very tersely. You have to remember it. You have to think about it too. Nothing that you have Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. You don't really have anything that you can keep, really keep, and that will last with you unless you've given it away. Unless you invest in the kingdom of God. Everything down here perishes. You'll let loose of everything. You don't really have it. You'll go back just as you came. You came naked. You'll leave naked. Nothing in your hand. But C.S. Lewis says, if you give it away, if you invest in the kingdom of God, you'll have a reward in heaven. And Jesus never diminishes that reward. He says, your reward in heaven will be great. That's, that's what would have given him a meaningful life. The, the other takeaway, the other takeaway outside of being a good steward of whatever resources, your time, your energy, your service, your money, all of it, put it to work for God. It's the best investment. The other takeaway is this, it's concerning rest. It was interesting, um, that Justin read a passage on on that in the introduction of our service rest that was the commodity that's what the stillborn or yes or the miscarriage experience that's what they got the, the stillborn escapes all of life's troubles all of life's difficulties all of of the challenges and and the pain and, and the dark shadows and all of it. They never see it. They never see the light of the sun. They come from the womb. Where can we find rest? What promise? Where is rest to be found? Justin told us that it was to be found in God. Even more specifically, we find it in Jesus What does he say? He lifts up his voice and he says, Come to me. Come to me, all ye who are weary and burdened. You are who are heavy laden. Listen, listen to his promise. I will give you rest. He promises that. The reason you don't come is because you are not burdened. You're not heavy laden. You don't have the conviction of sin that makes you restless and uneasy and uncertain and afraid. I cannot scare you into heaven. I wish I could. Can't do it. I can't weep you into heaven. You have got to come to him. You must come. It is your only hope. You've got to come to Jesus by faith and call upon his name and ask him to forgive your sins and ask him to give you a new life and ask you to save you from the penalty of your sins. Ask him for that. He promises he he says take my yoke. Take my yoke and learn from me because I am gentle and humble of heart and you will find rest. This text talks about, the previous text, Ecclesiastes talks about he found no rest for his soul. You can look at the text. Here is soul rest for anybody who wants it. Arms wide open. Wide open for any sinner who will call upon his name. And you will find rest. Those truths come to me. Find rest. And find that happiness and joy in being in walking with Jesus Christ. They're all right here. Maybe you remember George Mueller. It's my last quote. And I'm done. This man that was famous uh, uh, for providing education for children under his care to the point where he was accused of raising the poor above their natural station in life. Isn't that stupid? He established 117 schools which offered Christian education for over 120,000 children, many of them being orphans. A man who was full of good works, of sacrifice for Christ, of, of a godly life. He had everything. Here's what he said. And with this I closed. I am in dire need of this Redeemer. Without him, all things are of no avail, and I have no lasting value. That's George Mueller. Let's pray. Oh God, please help us to take away from this text what will be best for us, For some of us, it it will be a closing with Jesus Christ and to rest in him, to count on him, to pay for their sins. For some of us, it will be uh, to become uh, better stewards and not live like this man lived and to invest in the kingdom of God. And, and, And for us too, for us also to find rest in Jesus every day, in all of our troubles and all of our trials, make us run to the cross. Make us live at the foot of the cross. Make us to be really gospel-centered Christians. Make our lives to display the gospel and all the joy and happiness we have. Oh, God, make us a rejoicing people in Jesus. We ask this in his name and for his praise. Amen.